Weekend Variety. Wireless. Yeah, Daddy-O, uh, we're playing Truth or Consequences. Haven't had a game of Truth or Consequences in ages. Um, Anthony and Michael, I appreciate you hanging on the line. Uh, stay there, because Peter's bound to bugger up. Uh, g'day, Peter. <laughs> Thank you for the confidence there. <laughs> All right. Um, before Europeans arrived in America, the Native Americans already had a message delivery system very similar to what became known as the Pony Express, travelling on horseback from what is now Mexico to what is now Utah. Yeah. True or false? Mexico to Utah. Hmm. Yeah, on horseback. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. There were no horses in North America until Europeans brought them back in well, for the last 20,000 years or something. So I, I think it's fair to say that the um, American Indians didn't have the uh, Pony Express. No, they didn't. So, yeah, the horses were only brought in after European contact. So, Peter, thank you for playing, but off you go. Let's <coughs> say hello to Anthony. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Graham. It's too nil to me, man. Am I on form? Paying dirty pool, like... Yeah, right, here we go. Um, heroin was the active ingredient in cigarettes promoted to alleviate asthma. True or false? Uh, false. Correct. Marijuana was, though. I was going to say marijuana. Yeah, marijuana. Um, I had a friend who was chronic uh, asthmatic, and marijuana was about the only thing that would fix him. Mm, okay. Oh, okay. Uh, right. Two, one. Best of seven. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Just find a, find a cracker. Okay. It took Ringo Starr no fewer than 45 takes to get the drumming on back in the USSR right. True or false? False. False, did you say? Mm. Correct. Uh, do you know why? Because who, who drummed on it? He didn't drum on it, right? That's right, yeah. Paul McCartney drummed on back in the USSR because Ringo had gone off to play with Peter Sellers because he didn't feel loved. Really? But, but yeah, but when he came back, um, there were flowers all through the studio. Paul and John um, got together and, and George chipped in as well just to show that he was appreciated and everything was fine after that. That's nice. No wonder they stayed together so long. <laughs> yeah. Well, it wasn't that long, really. You know, active six years overall. God, it's not oh. long to do all they did. Uh, that recording career, that is. Okay, it's two all. In Alaska, in Anchorage, Alaska, there's a disco, there was a disco called Club Seal. Called what? Club Seal. How do you spell that? C L U B as in club, and seal as in oh, 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 oh. Uh, oh, God. Um, it sounds too ridiculous to be false. So uh, it's true. Oh, it's false. Uh, you just went the wrong way. Uh, before you go, yeah. what's a uh, baby seal's favourite drink? What's a what? What's a baby seal's favourite drink? Oh. <laughs> Do I want to know the answer? Okay, I don't know. Canadian Club on the Rocks. Ah! Nice, thank you. Hello, Michael. 
Yeah, bonjour, gravy. Um, it's 3-2 to me. Yeah, I know. The only state of Australia with no coastline is the Australian Capital Territory. Any state or territory with no coastline is the Australian Capital Territory. True or false? Lord. Sorry? I need a coin right now so I can flip heads or tails. Go in by current form, I'll go false. Correct. It does have yeah. a coastline. It's exactly. got this tiny little weird bit. Um, so they can have a coastline, I don't know, so they can ex import spies? I have no idea. Um, it's I have called no idea either. Jervis Bay. It's called Jervis Bay. Um, Never heard of it. Yeah. Man, it's come to this. It's three all. Best of seven. Oh, my, oh my giddy aunt. Um, I want to clear out the cupboard anyway, so... Do you have any movie? It's, it's all about the kudos. It's not the prizes, because you're going to get them anyway, because I don't want to get rid of the things. <laughs> I like the sound of that. <laughs> Thanks. I'm just, uh, I can sure talk a prize up, can't I? <laughs> you, you do it so well. All right. Eccolo, Miklo played the piccolo. Oh, gosh. I want to say false, but my gut instinct says that it's true. Correct, Eccolo Michelo was the piccolo player for the Los Angeles Symphony Orchestra. You can look him up of all yeah, the yeah. instruments. Oh, <laughs> just marvellous. It's like when uh, I saw yeah. Amy Park reporting from Amy Park. Just somehow it was beautiful. All the planets aligned. Um, we'll post out some all that stuff, maybe even something good if we can find it. Um, I appreciate you ringing up and playing. Michael, thank you very, very much for playing Truth or Consequences. Never know, we might have another game in the next uh, couple of weekends. Cheers. Thank you, Michael. Uh, also, later on this hour, we'll be speaking with um, uh, Robert Bartholomew, who's the author of the book called American Intolerance. Uh, his take on, well a lot of historical awfulness in the United States of America. Yes, Trump does come up. He's not as unintelligent as a lot of people think he is. Really? How do you know that? I don't. Weekend Variety Wireless. It's raining. Bullshit. Yes, hallelujah, Mark Honeychurch. He's got a show and tell. I love it when Mark has a show and tell. He's been out and about speaking with purveyors of woo. And you've got a couple of crackers tonight, Mark. G'day. Hey, how's it going? All right. Let's start off with the Ark Man. Um, there are, well, he's not the only proponent of this, but it's one of the harder things to actually hold up to the light of reason, isn't it? We're talking a Noah's Ark. Absolutely, yeah. Um, young Earth creationism and everything that comes with it. Um, it's a hard sell, but I think for a lot of Christians, a lot of evangelical Christians, the idea is that by believing in it, by professing a belief, they really are showing their willingness to um, to believe in anything. To, um, you know, they're, they're saying, look at me, I'm willing to do something that goes against this much evidence, that's this silly for my religion. 
Uh, and it's it's kind of an interesting idea that people do this. And the Ark is part of it, the idea that Noah's Ark was real, that this was an event that happened, uh, a global flood, maybe 2,000, I think 300 or 2,400 BC. It's uh, a, a lot of creationists have got the whole timeline sorted out going back to kind of 4004 BC, I think Bishop Usher mm. came out with an origin. Um, and so the guy we went to see, so there are a bunch of us skeptics jumped into a car and uh, we headed out to go and see a guy called Rod Walsh. And he styles himself as the Ark Man. He works for um, CMI, Creation Ministries International. And he was over for a couple of weeks from Australia to New Zealand, touring, giving talks in churches, and he brought a model with him. So the guy's famous for making models of arcs. Um, and he's got a particular idea himself of what the arc looks like. And so far, apparently, he's made six models. I'm not really an expert on what makes a boat seaworthy but i get a feeling that his models probably wouldn't stand up to any kind of battering from the sea to be quite honest okay it's just meant to float though i mean the instructions are in the bible but well, it's hard to find gopher wood these days <laughs> yeah that is an interesting one but i i get a feeling maybe it's just what i get from movies but from what i've seen of movies it looks like there are lots of waves out there when the flood happens i mean you've got waters bursting up from below and you've got a bit of tumult going on for quite a while before yeah. things settle down so i'd be surprised if this one managed it but um we, we were given a history of rod walsh and why he started making arcs and apparently it was because god spoke to him and he wasn't sure in the 90s whether what god said was real or not until the next day he tuned into the radio and the two people on the radio were talking about the ark and that he saw as absolute proof that this was not just a voice in his head this was actually god speaking to him you know how ironic this could be for somebody listening right now don't you you might have just had that feeling themselves that they'd been talking to god that god had told them now they've turned this on and heavens we've got another one we are creating the next generation of ark man uh, okay um, so, yeah he's been he's been traveling for 20 years um and it seems like the the story he's got he's got down pat it's it's a standard thing um a lot of nonsense arguments that i've heard before one of which is the misconception that if we look at how um how high let's say a layer of rock is let's say it's 20 meters and we look at how many million years that it caused to form or it took to form and then we divide one by the other um, you get an average deposition. Right? You you get, on average, how much sediment was laid down every year that was then squished to become rock. Mm. And then the argument is that animals can't be buried at that slow rate. If it's a tenth of a millimetre or a hundredth of a millimetre a year, an, an animal would rot before that time. And we got to see with this presentation pictures of fish who had choked on another fish and then been buried and fossilised, one fish that was midway through giving birth and was buried. And the argument from Rod was this doesn't happen over long periods of time. You need a very quick burial, which is what would happen if there was a global flood. Um, and of course, this gets people scratching their heads for a few minutes before they're like, hang on a minute, this is just an average deposition rate. It, it, it's scientists do not argue that every year a hundredth of a millimeter of deposits are laid down in order to form rock. These things happen on and off. So you might get a landslide. You might get a lot of underwater sediment that suddenly buries a fish. You might get animals that fall into tar pits. Mm. These events that fossilize animals, they happen suddenly. Um, they're not a slow, gradual thing. It's just over time, on average, it looks like it's slow and gradual. Yeah, and um, a, lot of the, a lot of places are actually being eroded at the moment, too. It depends. Some places are good for making fossils. Others are hopeless. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we've done a good job in science of being able to map that and try and actually make predictions about where we're going to find certain types of fossils, like Tiktaalik, the, yeah. um, the fish with legs and stuff like that. So we, we do some really cool stuff, but creationists like Rod Walsh and John Mackay and Jonathan Sarfati, who I've seen before, it seems like they're willfully ignorant of what science actually says, and they preach the straw man, and then they knock down the straw man, which isn't too surprising, because what they're saying isn't what scientists actually say. Okay, we've um, got some of them here. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, let's have that audio clip. Here he comes, Archman. And this couple come up to me one night, and they said, Rod, they said, uh, we believe in evolution millions of years, but I like him. <laughs> Folks, I started talking with them. They started to drink everything in. They were agreeing and nodding. Before they left, they said, what do you guys believe now? And they said, we believe in Jesus Christ and creation. Who thinks we need answers for these people? Amen? Because yes. one way to get answers is Creation Magazine. See, you live in a very evolutionized country, is that true? First Creation Magazine was started by an Adelaide doctor in the 1970s, now goes to 110 countries worldwide. It's written by scientists, but in layman's terms, brilliant short articles to really equip you, I tell you, and answer all your questions. Right. There he is. So, That's it. That, that bit was the end of the talk, and that was fascinating because that was the start of a sales pitch. And the sales pitch went on for 12 minutes, oh, basically okay, telling the audience of the books, the DVDs, the other materials, the subscription to Creation Magazine, all the stuff that they needed to buy to be good Christians, to be well-equipped Christians. And afterwards, it was just so sad to see the length of the queue, the number of people that were queuing up to buy the stuff. It was really, really disappointing. And um, one of my ex-Jehovah's Witnesses came along with me, and he was so frustrated by the whole thing, seeing the same kind of lies he had been told in his church, just happening in other churches. It was really kind of frustrating for him to see this going on. Yeah. All right, I'll try the USA far out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one nice story at the very end was um, we went to the pub afterward, as we tend to do after these things, and sat down for a chat, and one of our members, Daniel, admitted kind of sheepishly that he tried to shut the door on the model arc and it had fallen off in his hand. Uh -oh. um, <laughs> apparently it was stuck on blue tack, so yeah. the design wasn't that great. Yeah. I don't know why they try and do this thing with the the model arc and here's how it would have worked. Um, I mean, in your, according to your story, God's doing all these miracles anyway, so just make it happen. And it was so. So <laughs> Maybe that's what it is with the, the Dutch one, which it looks like a floating wooden arc, but underneath there are 21 steel barges that are holding it up. It, you know, it kind of looks like it's just wooden and floating by itself, but hidden underneath is the fact that modern engineering is keeping it all afloat. Yeah, yeah sinful, secular <laughs> modern engineering. If you had faith, proper faith, if we hadn't suffered the fall, uh, it would just stay up by itself due to God's will. Okay, anyway, uh, let's talk about Go Green Expo. And yeah, so you can pace yourself, you've got five minutes. Brilliant. So the Go Green Expo, um, it's become something of an annual pilgrimage for us sceptics. It's, um, it's supposed to be the green living and sustainable lifestyle show. So it, it's supposed to show you electric cars and um, having solar panels on your ceiling and maybe filtering groundwater instead of being plumbed in. That's not in reality what it is. What we actually see there, and it's increasing every year, is just nonsense alternative therapies. People making medical claims about cherry juice, magnetic bracelets, turmeric shakes, and all sorts of stuff, and a scaremongering. It's just 
horrible. We I listen to stuff about dirty electricity, uh, the problems of blue light and why you should be buying tinted glasses, toxins everywhere, and the issue with the fact that there are chemicals in things, um, that whole chemophobia thing that we hear so much. And there were talks that were called things like removing the chemicals from skincare, plant medicine, herbal tonics, and kombucha brewing 101. So there was a lot of woo, but there was one organization in particular that I'm interested in at the moment, doTERRA, and they sell essential oils, and the whole organization is also a multi-level marketing scheme. So this is one of those organizations that's kind of bad and predatory to an extent, and I think we've got some audio of my first stepped up to have a chat with them. Okay, here we go. Oh, no, Smelling something that's good. Is that I you guys? Yes, it is. It is. The oils are divine. Yeah. Has, do you use oils or not? No, not, not at all. Should I be using oils? Yes, of course you should be. <laughs> Reducing your tox load. You can cook with these. You can clean with these. You can have your mood, emotions uplifted. You can have your coughs and colds, your digestion, your aches and pains, uh, snoring, asthma. Amazing. So this one here is digesting. So uh, tummy bugs, poison, food poisoning, reflux. You drink this, so you can drop in water, put it on your skin. Oh yeah, that's good. Yeah. So that helps with food poisoning. Yeah. That could be really handy as like an emergency yeah. thing. Yeah. Constipation, diarrhea, reflux. Yeah. Um, bloatiness, irritable bowel, Crohn's, all that sort of stuff. Oh, probably a wheel alignment and balance as well. But <laughs> what does she say that it was going to cure food poisoning? Uh, yeah, I think that might have been peppermint. I can't remember. I was given so many things to smell, and they ended up... I, would, I got on so well with them for maybe 20, 30 minutes, they ended up sending me away with a sample because I told them I had a headache. So I went away smelling of something really strong, and that is something. The, the oils are really strong smelling, mm. but the claims they make are just nonsense. It's really unfortunate to hear. I had a chat um, kind of later on in the conversation. We got down to the, the point of what claims can they make, and they were talking about how they can't say on websites... They can't say on social media a lot of the things they want to say about the essential oils. Of course, the reason being they don't have any evidence for the claims they want to make. Um, but they told me it was absolutely fine to tell me in person that these oils could help me with pretty much any medical condition I could possibly be suffering from. Yeah. Um, so that was fascinating to see. And then we got to the prices, which I absolutely choked at. So a small pack of oil started at 400 bucks. What? Um, they showed me one set, $1,500, and I counted up... <laughs> Come on! Yes, it's a lot. I counted up on the $1,500 pack how much oil was in there, and it was 320 mils, um, so about a third of a litre for $1,500. So that, that's about four grand a litre for these oils, which even if it was medical and was able to help you, it would still be way too much for something like this. Um, so yeah, I walked away from there smelling interesting, but ultimately disappointed that these guys are, are still out there and they're still peddling this nonsense to unaware people, unfortunately. You could have set up a store right next door and sold people, you told people, five bucks can sniff me. Because it's really about what it's worth. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, again, we, we went to the pub a little while afterwards, um, and we sat down with all the leaflets that we'd picked up. Mm. And in one evening, a few of us managed to fire off 10 complaints to the Advertising Standards Authority mm -hmm. about different companies because the number of illegal claims being made was just ridiculous. So hopefully in the next month or two, we're going to see a lot of changes with those companies and their advertising. Maybe they'll uh, they'll learn to be a little bit more careful in the future. Yeah, and if people think up there, oh, come on, uh, what's the harm? 
there's actually a website to go to called What's the Harm? And there's a lot of harm can be done. Yeah, well, even things you'd think would not be a problem. Um, in some cases, they can be deadly. Yeah. Mark Honeychurch, thank you so much, as always. And I will be speaking again soon. Okay, thank cool. you. Skeptical Thoughts, Good Mark speaking. Honeychurch of uh, New Zealand Skeptic. The Weekend Variety Wireless. A new publication through Prometheus Books that does a lot of great sceptical stuff. Uh, this is by Robert Bartholomew, resident in New Zealand, a teacher, and it's lovely to have him here, author of many books. The specialist subject really is about moral panics and has done the textbook on it. This book is called American Intolerance, Our Dark History of Demonising Immigrants. From the title, Robert, it's for American consumption. Yes, but, you know, we, we also can learn from this because here in New Zealand, as you may know, in places like Pukekohe during the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, we had moral panics over Chinese and Indians and even Maori living there. Yeah. Moral panics being these exaggerated periods of fear of outsiders, fear of foreigners who are wrongly viewed as a threat to our way of life. They're, they're going to take our jobs. They're going to rape our women, they're going to leech off the welfare system and lead to the fall of our civilization. They become scapegoats for society's problems. Yeah, and it can manifest, the symptoms can be lethal and really awful. They can be. What's interesting in America is that um, when I started looking at this, I started looking at Trump's quotation about Mexican-Americans, and I looked at the history there, and 170 years ago, Mexicans were being labeled as rapists and gang members, just like Trump had done. And so I said to myself, we've seen this play before. And that's the message for the book. The current scare about Mexican-Americans is just one in a long list of foreigner panics that keep on happening. So to understand today's events, you need to look back in history. But this is not just a book about America. You know, every country in every time period has had some type of moral panic where you have these scapegoats for our problems. Probably the most famous one would be what happened in Nazi Germany during the, the 1930s and 40s. Yeah, of course. That's well known. I just want to get on this Donald Trump quote thing. I'm no Trump fan, but did he really say that they are... Um, it, it's often said that it was a racist thing to say that they were rapists and they're bringing in drugs, but then he qualified it because he's clumsy and he's no good English. And some, I assume, are good people. He did the not all, didn't he? He did. He likes to do things like that, just like what happened in uh, Charlottesville with the um, uh, white supremacists that were there, and it took him days to come back and uh, moderate his comments after saying there are good people on both sides. And I think, you know, he's... Um, is very good at what he does, which is dividing people and distracting. He's not as unintelligent as a lot of people think he is. Really? How do you know that? I don't. But, <laughs> but in terms of his ability, he's a savant in a way on driving the media issue for the day with his tweets. And the media just grabs it you know he puts the hook out there and and they just go for it that's how he's managed to survive i cannot imagine as an american myself that donald trump will 
get reelected or even be the candidate. I, I find that very difficult to believe just because... Hang on, been... hang on, hang on though, Robert. How much did you believe he could get elected in the first place? Oh, I absolutely was 100% that uh, Hillary Clinton was going to win. 100%. Right. I mean, I would have bet my house that uh, Hillary Clinton would have won, and I was wrong. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about immigration policy. This is regarding the United States primarily and how the policy has changed since 1776. That idea, the foundation of the United States as a sanctuary of, uh, where you can believe in your own God as long as you abide by the rules, it did have this feeling of openness and welcomeness. It was um, a social experiment, a national social experiment, wasn't it? That's true, but starting in the mid-1800s, um, you hear people saying that the atmosphere of intolerance in America has never been this bad. But starting in the mid-1800s, things were even worse. In fact, a lot worse. You had the uh, discrimination against Mexican-Americans. Um, if you look at that... You were at war with them. We were at war. We just took what we wanted. We annexed northern Mexico. One of the reasons we annexed northern Mexico was there weren't that many Mexicans there that would potentially become U.S. citizens. But do you know that the animosity against Mexican-Americans was so great that between 1850 and 1890, a person of Mexican heritage had the same chance of being lynched as an African-American? And then you go into the 1870s and 1880s, there was a fear of the Chinese, and then you had the cheer, uh, fear of the Japanese, and then during World War One, it was German-Americans were the new enemy. And during World War II, the enemy was the, uh, were Jews and Jewish refugees. There was a, a, um, a fear during World War II that um, we should not take in Jewish refugees from Germany because they were spies for Hitler. And we only took in about 10% of the overall quota that we were allowed to take in Jewish refugees in Nazi Germany. And what's really interesting there is it didn't change until the mid-1940s, but you know, you've heard of the famous Kinder Transport in December of 1939, 10,000 Jewish children were allowed to travel to the relative safety of England because the, the Nazis let them go. Well, the Nazis, Goebbels and Hitler used to joke that in 1938, 1939, look, we'll let the Jews go. But nobody wants to take them. Well, they offered the United States 20,000 uh, Jewish children to come over to the relative safety of the United States. They turned them down. Congress turned them down. And these were kids 14 and under. And they were giving ridiculous answers like uh, in Congress. It's, um, well, we'd be breaking up Jewish families. <laughs> um, they'd be better off in Germany. No, they, they wouldn't be better off in Germany. The plight of the Jewish people in Germany was very well known uh, in the 1933, 34, 35. And then by that time, you had Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass. Yep, okay. I mean, things were terrible. Now, the Holocaust hadn't happened yet, but things were really bad. And what I mentioned in the book, it's really fascinating. So they turned down these, these uh, Jewish children coming to America. And yet the British um, took them. In the next year, in 1940, after they turned them down in 1939, American, they had this push to uh, have uh, British kids come to the United States. And they had 5,000 British kids come into the United States. Yet they, and that's great, but they 
At the same time, we're denying Jewish children from coming into the United States as well. And there was a very interesting issue of Pets magazine uh, in 1940 that came out. And in Britain, they, had a, they were concerned about their um, British purebred uh, dogs. They asked if any people in America wanted to take the dogs. And they had thousands of readers wrote in offering to take the dogs uh, during, during the war and during the bombings and stuff like that. Yet they wouldn't take the Jewish children. Aren't you being a little harsh on your home country of the United States, which has been a refuge for many people in the end of so many different ethnic varieties? Uh, Look at the Lower East Side, what happened there. Look at the role that Jewish people in the United States have played. And look at the lineup of Nobel freaking prizes. Uh, look at the Chinatowns today. Asian people in the United States are the highest achieving on any criteria you would like to wheel out. Yeah, you know, I don't think I'm being too harsh. Um, I think it's important that we, we dig up this history and that we look at it very carefully because if history doesn't repeat itself, at the very least, it rhymes. Yeah. And it keeps happening, and it's happening right now. I mean, with uh, Islamic refugees and migrants or the so-called caravan from uh, Latin America, Central America, what people don't realize often is that migrants are actually less likely to commit crimes. Over and over again, studies show that. Um, many take lower-paying jobs that no one wants. They pay taxes, which overall lowers the tax burden. And in most acts of tourism in places like the United States are people who are domestics. They're not immigrants, refugees, uh, migrants, asylum seekers. Ha- um, haven't you got a bit of a blind spot there for Europe? Well, it's, it's, it's similar in Europe. Most of them are not refugees and asylum seekers. They're homegrown terrorists. Um, last year in America, over 5,000 people... But they're Islamic terrorists. What's that? They're homegrown Islamic terrorists. Well, yes. It's, a, it's a worry. Don't, one shouldn't uh, get confused. An ideology was simply uh, immigration. But if you, you wouldn't want to blinker yourself that if many of these people are highly likely to be motivated by political Islam, shouldn't you be careful? Well, I focus on migrants, asylum seekers, uh, refugees. And if, if you look at that record... Um, it's it's far more a domestic threat, but we seem to be much more focused on the the outer enemy when we need to focus on the enemy from within. Mm. Yeah, you're saying Americans are more likely to die slipping in the bathtub than by a terror attack. But in this case, the bathtub hasn't any ideology. It's not really out to get you. It's really up to you. It has no group to ascribe to. It hasn't an attitude towards you. Whereas... Uh, political Islam, Islamic terrorists, they do. Well, I'm just focused on the demonization of migrants, which is going on today in the United States and Europe. And, you know, in in New Zealand, we have this giant moat. So we are somewhat uh, protected from this, and we haven't really felt the full brunt of this like the Europeans and the Americans where the borders are you know we don't really have unless they're good swimmers we don't really have that concern yeah and that is such a luxury isn't it I still feel though for my fellow human and can understand 
why they bristle at the idea of more immigration from certain ideologies, not races, actually not ethnic groups, but ideologies. I can sympathise with that. We could mention so many things, couldn't we? Uh, Bataclan, Jewish supermarket, Danish skeptics shooting, Danish cartoon deaths, Marseille truck, Charlie Hebdo, London Underground. I haven't even started on Rotherham and Telford. Appalling. Uh, Rape gangs. Well, I would just say that the the vast number of people ascribing to a Muslim ideology are peaceful people. And if you talk to Muslims in New Zealand, like I have, they will say, oh, those people aren't Muslim. No, no, exactly, but they do. But those people, good, then they're not the problem. But the other people that are raiding hell, they'd call themselves Muslim too. Yeah, that's true. But the vast majority are, and we need to be careful. We need to carefully screen people coming into the country. Um, However, um, to do what uh, Donald Trump has done, which is to ban people coming in from certain Islamic-majority countries, um, where there has never been a... A threat from uh, Muslim migrants in the past, I think that's a dangerous thing, a dangerous precedent whenever we, we call out certain countries. Okay. I'm looking at some few polls on attitudes. Is it moral to be homosexual? That came back with uh, British Muslims at 0%. Uh, that worries me. I mean, you say the vast majority, but it's enough, isn't it, to worry about? And in that case... With that, this is a pretty well well done poll. Um, that's enormously worrying. Well, I, I would say it is. I'm not, I'm not sure who did the poll. Pew. Okay, um, and and look, they have a good reputation. But um, you know, I think that um, when we look at people's ideology, we have to try to um, take in people that are willing to, and maybe they need to make this as part of the immigration process. People yeah. who are inclusive who are tolerant and believe in uh, ethnic diversity. Hear, hear. I, I thoroughly agree with you. And as kind of a return of serve to myself, who in America, well, maybe this is actually something that, um, uh, a fun example on uh, how attitudes in America, I suppose, in the end, can be shifted around. Um, the most famous, most loved, revered, American from the USA of the 20th century was an African-American Muslim, Muhammad Ali. Hmm. Interesting. Mm. The separation of church and state, does that help? You do uh, write in the book about uh, somewhat critical that a call to prayer at Duke University, it's a famous university, uh, an Islamic call to prayer was, was howled down. Shouldn't any call to prayer be held down? Well, they were just doing this on uh, Friday afternoons when they have the, their Friday prayer. It was just once a week. I think that uh, that's a bit concerning when, um, when, they were, when they had to reverse themselves within a couple of days and, and stop doing that. Um, I'm, look, I'm for tolerance and diversity. I think New Zealand overall has a very good record. Yeah. And I just think that migration-wise, I'm not sure how good our immigration system here is here with some recent decisions, but um, I think we need to just make sure that we vet 
people carefully. Mm. And uh, there's no reason why Muslims shouldn't be part of that mix as long as they are peaceful, tolerant people. And, and most of the Muslims I know are. And I think yep. the majority of Muslims in the world are as well. Of course, Christianity had some issues uh, during the Crusades as well. Oh, yes, of course. But then again, you could say that um, the Islamic expansion did as well before the Crusades happened, and that's why the Crusades happened. I've often wondered why uh, some uh, Muslim countries don't protest that we have a team in Christchurch called the Crusaders in with the imagery there and stuff like that. I'm not saying you shouldn't have it. I'm just saying I can see where they might not people be happy have, about that. Yeah, people have warred with each other for, for years and years and years and years. The Islamic expansion went all the way up into Spain, the siege of Vienna and Austria as well. I mean, God, they were just all at it. Hmm. Yeah. So, I don't know. You could make the same argument that, oh, if I'm wanting to think back that far, um, the Muslim representational of anything Muslim might be offensive to me. But we get over that, don't we? Yeah, and I'm not aware of any major Muslim terrorist incident in New Zealand thus far. I mean, no, knock on no, wood. No, no, no. Neither do I. And Lord, let us hope it stays that way. We haven't been perfect. We aren't always very good at it at all. But it does seem as though New Zealand has lower temperature regarding these things. I would agree with that. And, you know, there's something else I would really like to mention on your program, and that is for the past year, I have been researching the history of racial segregation in New Zealand in the town of Hukakoi. Wow. Uh, from the 1920s to the early 60s, I've gone to the New Zealand archives. I've been interviewing people where Maori were not welcome in certain eating establishments. They, they wouldn't serve them alcohol. Barbers refused to cut their hair. And they, even if they did, there was, uh, there was at least one barber that had a special Maori-only chair so people wouldn't catch a disease. They were relegated to the downstairs of the Strand Movie Theater. It was nearly impossible to rent a house in Pukekohe or even get a loan if you were Maori. And I just wanted to mention that because I've nearly finished a book on this. And I'm, I'd be interested if you had any listeners who had stories about that, that they were interested uh, in, in telling me. Um, they can contact th through me uh contact me through the Wikipedia page that I have. There's a link to the website that has my email address. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a powerful story, and it's an important story that needs to be told. And New Zealand has this long history of having some of the best race relations in the world. And I think New Zealand is a wonderful country. But this is also something that I think needs to be told. And I've spent a year of my life uh, developing this, working on this, and I'm nearly finished. And I'd love to hear from your listeners. All right. Um, and the analogue of that for the United States, which will probably, given the time, be our last subject. Attitudes towards American Indians. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, they were at war with the uh, colonists um, in their own country. So there you go. Uh, what were the... Perhaps some anecdotes or just something from that chapter, which is really interesting. Yeah. It was really interesting. In 1883, uh, the government came up with this code of Indian offenses, which outlawed plural marriages, uh, traditional dancing, uh, communal feasts, native healers, 
Um, all these things, it was, I view it as a form of ethnocide, an attempt to whip out an entire set of countries because it was seen as um, inferior to Western values. And the Code of Indian Offenses was not abolished until 1933. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's just a fascinating area of, of American history. Um, Indians were widely viewed as barbaric, lawless, simplistic, childlike. Um, you know, Indian on Indian slavery was going on, and there was injustices committed on one tribe to another. But, I mean, if you look at Europe at the time, Europe wasn't that much better. I mean, look at the witch hunts between, say, 1400 and 1650. By some estimates, upwards half of half a million people died. Um, brutally tortured, drowned, shot, poisoned, starved, hacked to death, burned at the stake. Um, So we don't have uh, any better record in terms of European history than what was going on in America at the time. And then you look at the witchcraft scare in Salem and all that stuff. Um, So when you look at Indians, Native Americans, as being primitive and superstitious, well, all you have to do is look at Salem and what happened there and and some of our um, other beliefs. Oh, yes, of course, but they they wouldn't see it because it was theirs. However, you have someone like a famous general in the Civil War with the middle name Tecumseh, who was a famous military leader uh, from, I forget which tribe, but there has to be a deal of respect there, doesn't there? Yeah, there is, just like, you know, there's there's a deal of respect here for Maori, but um, if you look at um, playing the Springboks, was it up until 1960, no Maori were allowed to play, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, yeah, 49, no Maoris, please. And we said, yeah, okay. One of the shameful episodes in New Zealand rugby union history that is quite conveniently concreted over. So each, each country, I think, has their own... Um, issues with indigenous peoples. Yeah. And you know what was really fascinating? And looking uh, through the different groups that were discriminated against, um, they used to have signs uh, in, in uh, the southwestern United States, no dogs, uh, no Mexicans allowed. But when you go up into the, um, into the north in Alaska, they had signs like uh, no dogs or um, Eskimos allowed. It was all over the country. It was the local indigenous people that were discriminated against with these um, just stereotyping. Yep. And, of course, we, we, have a, we have a history of that here as well, as all countries do. Yep. And I, I think, quite thankfully, one of the words that has come up is historical. So much is historical. So much is a black-and-white photograph. Uh, it is in society extremely frowned on today i'm not saying it doesn't exist there are a lot of racist people out there people that have uh, have moral panics about certain groups for un unreasonable reasons but so much of what you're talking about you have to find a black and white photograph don't you and look history repeats itself they used to have signs no maori allowed in hamilton there were multiple shops in the early 1960s that would not allow maori to try on pants. Mm. You had to just kind of guess the size and then you bought it. It's good to know our history. All right, thank you very much, Robert Bartholomew, in association with co-author Anya Reimschussel. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, it is. Oh, woofed. I've got it for time, Robert. <laughs> You're a genius. Uh, no, American Intolerance, our dark history of demonizing immigrants, special subject, moral panics. And, Robert, I hope we get to talk again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Read me a poem tonight.
a musical colleague and friend. He knows a thing or two about literature. The founder of The Puddle and also megastar of Mink, great songwriter, George Henderson, reads us a favourite and tells us why in the next hour.